Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, April 23rd, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, the 75-year-old monthly of intellectual analysis, political probity, and cultural criticism from a conservative perspective. We invite you to join us at CommentaryMagazine.com. We give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. Our May issue is up with all kinds of glories and wonders for you. And also with glories and wonders for you today, we have executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, So yesterday, Earth Day, Joe Biden announced uh, that... uh, uh, America was going to have its um, uh, its carbon emissions uh, by uh, 2030 and uh, get to net zero by 2050, um, which of course is a completely unreachable, uh, indeed even delusional goal. Um, I assume that this is based in some fashion on on JFK's promise in 1961 that we would um, we would send a man to the moon and return him uh, by the end of the decade. But of course, that was a prescribed, limited, a technological challenge involving a, a specific use of rocketry and, you know, and ingenuity or something like that. And this is a wholesale revision of the entire way the American economy and the uh, daily life of Americans uh, proceeds uh, and, uh and is 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 unreachable. Um, so, where this gets me is 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 this idea. Um, Biden is seventy eight years old, and though he says he is intending to run again in twenty twenty four, we all understand that that is at at best a fifty fifty proposition, and probably that is really the best. Uh, that he could hope for. And so um, he has decided in conjunction with his people that he is going to swing for the fences and try to get as much giant stuff as he can or be credited with as much giant stuff as he can so that his very likely or possible one-term presidency is viewed as significant and not simply as some kind of a transitional meaningless things since of course when we think about one-term presidencies we think about carter and we think about the elder bush and 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 now we'll think about trump and these are not presidencies that you want would want i think history if you wanted to have a position in the history books to emulate uh so his but his version of swing for the fences then is he's going to announce this unachievable goal while simultaneously spending four, five, six trillion dollars on other or trying to spend on other desiderata, uh, child tax credits, all this money for unions, for child care, all the stuff in the infrastructure bill, all the stuff in the coronavirus relief package. Um, and uh, it is conceivable that if you wanted to say, look, the most important thing in the history of the world is climate change and we have to do something dramatic and serious about climate change in the next 10 years or the planet is finished. Therefore, we have to put everything else on hold in order to do that because it's going to cost $100 trillion. That would be a serious challenge. But saying you can do this while simultaneously spending federally 
hundreds of billion dollars more on childcare than on fixing bridges, uh, marks it either as disingenuous or, as I say, as some kind of bizarre thing where he, they're just throwing everything up there. So that's my that's my proposal to you guys. It's not even a choice between guns and butter or saying, okay, we'll do, which was a famous 1960s thing that Lyndon Johnson decided that he would do guns and butter, right? That was the Vietnam War and giant social spending, which um, proved to be uh, inflationary and, and, and damaging to the public wheel over time. But nonetheless, uh, he was conscious and cognizant of the, cho- of the decision he was making not to make a decision. And here it just seems like, you know, with a compliant press, he can say anything and everything will be considered just a wonderful, uh, you know, a change for social betterment. Okay, I'm done. I mean, anybody who seriously looks into the problems associated with the, the 100% renewable goals, for example, New York City has committed that by 2025... Four years from now, every government entity, every government building, every government car is going to be powered by renewables. How do you do that? Well, you got to buy a lot of Canadian energy. So they're going to buy a lot of Canadian hydroelectric energy. Um, Even that will likely prove insufficient. So you got to get it from somewhere else. And then there's this competing values problem. The first of it is that we, we encounter the limits of physics when we try to make lithium ion batteries that are sustained large enough to hold the amount of power that you need from renewable sources. Um, So you have resource usage problems there because it takes a lot of materials to make those batteries, most of which come from the developing world. And you got to strip mine a lot of land to get them. And then you also have to use a lot of land to make, you know, have, have sufficient energy. So like a solar power plant requires a whole lot of acreage and um, a variety of other land use problems. So environmentalists, come into conflict with conservationists when they try to actually create this hundred percent renewable landscape um, as they should. And these are competing values. Um, most of which, you know, are not resolved because to resolve them would be to enter into conflict with one another. And they don't want conflict. They want a solidarity movement. They want a political movement. So they never actually resolve any of these issues and just make these lofty pledges and people I don't think people are going to really mind it when they don't come about. It's just, it's just a statement of principle so well, much as it is, you know, an actual policy preference. And that's, that's actually, so, that's a really important point for the, uh, both for the way that the media has treated this global summit, you know, recently, but also for what's actually going on domestically. So we had Ed Markey and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez reintroduce their, their Green New Deal the other day. And, you know, Ed Markey tweeted out at the time, his, his tweet said, this is on April 20th, says, we're reintroducing the Green New Deal. The past two years are proof that it's not just a resolution, it's a revolution for jobs, justice, and the bold possible climate action. The era of the Green New Deal is here. So the use of those words, it's a revolutionary thing. And it's not just about the climate. It's about everything. Everything is about justice and climate. And and so there's a sense in which on Biden's left flank, he's going to he's got people who are self-proclaimed climate revolutionaries demanding all kinds of things that he politically is not going to be able to deliver, particularly as he's got to assuage the agriculture sector and, and farmers and, and, you know, other constituencies that are, that are also asking for money from the federal government right now. So he's got a domestic political uh, positioning problem at the same time that there's a global 
the, the issue of who is creating the world's worst pollution is pretty clear. And it's not the United States, right? There, it's developing economies. It's China. It's India. It's places where the West's demands that, that they pull back and live more simply are just not going to fly economically for those nations. So what what is going on here? I mean, by which I mean Biden cannot, by diktat, lower American carbon emissions by half. Uh, the president of the United States does not have control over the U.S. economy in that fashion. How many automobiles are there in the United States? While you guys talk, I'm going to look up how many automobiles there are in the United States. Well, then I'll, I'll just also add, John, while you look that up, um, the getting to uh, net zero uh, by 2050 is sort of comical and preposterous for other reasons. The first of which is you can't project out that far into the future uh, what will even be a concern for Americans at that point. Who knows that, if that, that we'll be talking about climate altogether by then, e- either because uh, catastrophes haven't come to pass or entirely uh, different solutions have, have arisen. Okay, so there are 287 million automobiles in the United States, of which my guess is the 2 million are electric, maybe 5 million. I don't even know. But I mean, so um, you're talking about uh, more than 280 million cars. Now, if they stopped making cars that, you know, weren't electric just today, by 2030, how much of the U.S. fleet of cars would be um net zero or halved in their carbon emissions. I mean, this is preposterous. I, I saw last night a bit of a special about Greta Thunberg, uh, you know, uh, for Earth Day. And, uh, you know, she's going around on a ship and all this. And then some uh, British climatologist explains that, you know, if we could just slow uh, the ships down, if the ships went half as fast, the carbon, you know, the the containerized cargo ships that uh, that by which uh, most of the goods in the world are transported, uh, large large goods, obviously uh, transported across the seas and all that. If we could just slow them down to half speed, we would vastly reduce carbon emissions. So let let's just game that out a little bit. Okay, so basically uh, all deliveries of goods, including perishable goods, should take twice as long. I I don't want to just go with the it's not going to happen, because obviously it's not going to happen. I just mean logistically what could be on those chips that people might need in faster time? Uh, Medicines? Uh... I don't know, you know, cribs, uh, uh, all kinds of stuff that people might need. Uh, let's say uh, you're trying to rebuild uh, a city or someplace that has been destroyed by a tsunami or, you know, a earthquake or something like that. How about lumber? Suddenly now that ship is supposed to go, you know, at half speed uh, from wherever you get the lumber to taking it where you need to go to help repair something that's been in an emergency. This is the level of thinking that we're talking about here. 
these kind of like magical solutions. If we could just slow the economy down in a world that is, you know, has 7 billion people in it, then we could do this. And so this is, these are the people to whom Biden is now attempting to appeal. Not that I don't think that he doesn't mean it. I'm sure he thinks that it would be wonderful if we got to, if we halved our carbon emissions by 2030. How about a different tact? How about a different tact? Like, um, how about you spend five trillion dollars on cold fusion or on you know on on, on whatever that I, I mean I'm just spitballing, but it, it seems to me to be as rational to say we need to find a a form of renewable energy or net car, or, or much reduced carbon energy, uh, and we're going to devote two trillion dollars to the program, you know, cold fusion, whatever you want to call it. But that's not what's being said. Nothing is being said. It's just a kind well, of one thing is being said that's very typical swamp politics, as usual, uh, for a Biden administration that claims to want to be much more ethical than its predecessor. And that's that its energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, as our friends at the Free Beacon found, actually owns a lot of investments in one of the companies that the Biden administration has been visiting and touting one of these electric battery companies. It has, and, and she, they have not confirmed that she's divested herself of the, I think it's around $5 million in electric battery uh, company called uh, Proterra. Um, it, there's, there's money built into the infrastructure package for, for companies like that. There's at least the kind of, certainly a whiff of impropriety about some of the ways in which these Green New Deals are actually going to benefit Democratic Party members and, and leaders in the Democratic Party in a way that I think all Americans, regardless of how you feel about whether you want to drive an electric car or not, should be concerned because that is how swamp, that's how the swamp has long been uh, working. It's it's not the way most Americans want to see deals being made um, so that people like Granholm can line her pockets down the line. But for the grassroots who doesn't know or care about any of that stuff, <clears throat> the the movement itself is dominated by people for whom the idea that uh, industrialized industrialization and progress, technological progress is the cause of this problem. So it therefore cannot be the solution to the problem. And by and large, their advocacy generally tends to lean into reducing your quality of life, as you see in places like California, which for some reason now everybody who lives in this glorious state, which is endowed with so many amazing resources and human capital that they don't know what to do with one of the world's you know largest standing economies by itself has rolling blackouts. It's like Venezuela and people just kind of live with it because you just have to accept that fact that we have to pare back our quality of life, even though technological advancement and consumer demand fueled by consumer demand has done more to advance green objectives per se than any other government mandate. Or we tax behavior that is actually part of the necessity of, of, of maintaining a middle class life in America. Like you live in an outer suburb where there are better schools and you have to drive a long way to your job. And now the transportation secretary wants to tax you per mile that you drive uh, versus the people in cities who don't even own cars. So they, it, there are definitely light. The lifestyle choice aspect of this doesn't get enough attention. I totally agree with you, Noah. Yeah, but I think, you know, Noah's on to something larger there, too. I think cause it's all part of this idea of undoing. Um, things that have, you know, has, have some sort of meanness at their core, some sort of um, un, unfeeling uh, disregard for for people. I mean, and, and there's really no end to it, right? You don't, you could you could slow the ships, but you could also slow the speed limit of cars, right? If you cut those in half, 
That would take care of some problems. I mean, you'd, you'd have far fewer fatal uh, automobile accidents in a country that has a, a lot of them, right? It's no coincidence that the last general secretary of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, is now a prominent environmentalist. Right. He wins awards for writing books about in the environmental trauma that he presided over and that the West presides over and how important it is to scale back our qualities of life because we're killing the planet. Well, you know, the great story about Perestroika and Gorbachev <clears throat> comes <clears throat> a year into his premiership when he takes a trip to Canada. And he is taken somewhere in Canada to a vast farm, you know, an industrial farm uh, where they produce an enormous amount of weed or something for export. And uh, he's looking at this, they're explaining to him, you know, how it works, when the threshing go, how the ship it, what all that stuff. And then he says, well, how many people are working in the fields? And the manager of the firm says, um, uh, no, no, nobody, uh, because this was 1984, 1985. It was already automated. In other words, all, the, all of the, everything that was going on was automated. It wasn't, you know, farmers in the fields with a scythe or even running a tractor or something like that. There was a massive automated farm. And that, according to Gorbachev, was when he knew that the Soviet Union was finished. Because in the Soviet Union, it would take a thousand people to produce the materials and the, you know, the stuff that were being produced by no one that were being taken out of the ground by no one. This was considered or deemed, this was the great strength by which the United States and the West and the capitalist West destroyed the greatest evil of our time, which is productivity growth, innovation in these sectors and the sorts of things uh, that uh, do not lean us toward a more pre-industrial way of life, which is the fantasy that a lot of environmentalists, and not just environmentalists, I mean, a lot of people seem to have these days that, you know, everything is so terrible and we're all so dehumanized if we only lived as though we were living in the 18th century while having computers and, you know, being on the internet and watching Netflix and all getting to do all of that, but nonetheless still living you know, a communitarian life around a village green where we planted our, you know, rutabagas. Um, you know, this is a this is a very deep strain uh, in our thought. And it, it's like, who speaks for progress now? I mean, who says, you know how we're going to get out of this? We're going to innovate the crap out of it. If we really believe that we have a problem the West's core strength is its capacity to innovate and to change the rules by which things work by coming up with better, more productive, less costly solutions. And that's been going on, including <clears throat> in the environment, for many, many decades. Look at Pittsburgh. Look at, you know, look at the ways in which Coal towns and steel cities and all of that have reduced their emissions. Look at the kinds of differences that scrubbers make and all kinds of th like that. And, and as I say, in some fantasy, you would have 
you know, um, a Manhattan Project for Cold Fusion or something like that. That that's what would be more in keeping with the way that we do things, or that we could actually realistically look to meeting some goal of reducing carbon emissions. If you believe it's important, the story of the development of the tokamak reactor is actually rather indicative of our problem is it was after the cold war, it was internationalized, it became an international project. It wasn't about innovation anymore. It was about the global community, which has spent the last 20 years innovating by committee, therefore deciding, spending much of his time deciding where the thing should go more than actually. What, what are you, what develop. are you referring to? What well, tokamak reactors, which is what you're descri- I, describing. Uh huh. A, a process of cold fusion and using right. deuterium or helium three, which exists off planet. I mean, that's sort of, it's very, it's very science fictional, but it's not physically impossible. It can be done. And we've been researching this for quite a long time. The problem is, is that it's not a process of innovation. We're not in a competition here. It's all internationalized. It's all about, well, you know, the, the, the community of man coming together to make this thing happen. And therefore it never happens. There's this, also, Oh, go ahead. Dave. Very quickly. The same applies to the Paris accord, right? Paris Accord was about everyone coming together to stop doing things. Um, and, and, if you, and if you weren't involved in the Paris Accords, but were actually committed to reducing your carbon, you had a better outcome. You, you were more likely to reduce carbon than you were by you know, getting together with, with, with that group. Well, and this is this is actually uh, I'm glad you said that, because the, there is also a problem here with perceptions of how elites are both talking about this problem and tackling it with the reality of how they, in fact, live their lives. So Bernie Sanders putting out tweets about how we, you know, the climate, it's such an emergency. The dude owns three houses. If it's such an emergency, sell two of them. You know, you have AOC who spends her entire life on Instagram. Well, you know what emits as much CO2 as the airline industry and uses a lot of electricity? Server farms that power all of this internet technology that we all use. So the the idea that there's like a a particular lifestyle choice that doesn't have anything to do with class or educational or socioeconomic background is so offensive to me because the people that they are constantly chastising are are the ones who, if, if they can afford a vacation where they can put their family on a plane and go to Disney World, it's rare. These people fly around on private jets going to Paris and Oslo and all these other, you know, and, and uh, talking about all the changes that have to be made. And yes, I know that's how it's always been. But I, I find it particularly egregious that the things that they want to change dramatically and radically aren't the things that actually they use on a regular basis or they require to live their lives of comfort. It's what people who aren't like them require, uh, like a, a, a car that actually can get them to and from their job, which might be 50 miles away from their home. Look, I mean, you know, the interesting thing is that yeah, it's always a great gotcha. Like I think the first, the first, one of the first great gotchas was Lori David, Larry David's ex-wife, huge environmentalist who of course wouldn't travel anywhere, but on a private plane. And her reputation didn't really recover from that, even though, you know, even though she's still a big environmental and everything like that, but she was sort of like, seemed like a relatively saintly person. And then it began to occur to people that it was otherwise. I mean, the other way to look at this is that uh, they say that we need to save the planet, but they travel on private planes because it's, of course, that's not going to make the difference, right? How What they do on private planes is going to make the difference until there is gigantic civilization-wide change, at which point they, of course, wouldn't. But until then, what they do is not is a drop in the bucket, right? That that would be the way that they look at it, except that every human being is a drop in the bucket 
in 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 his own way. So if they can't bear not fr- flying on private planes, fine. So they don't f- fly on private planes. But some families need three pickups, and some of those pickups that maybe someone could pick up a pickup for a thousand bucks. That's you know from 1979. If they live in a place where even though that's like 40 years old, even if they live in a place that's um you know where the the pickup didn't rust. And it was kept in relatively good shape, but it's going to emit worse. It's going to have worse emissions than a, a car today. Um, they also have to live, uh, you know, in the terms under which they live. They can use another pickup. Should they have one? No, nobody should have more than one car. If you're Pete Buttigieg, you're floating the idea that people need to, you know, pay a tax per mile uh, to drive in the United States. Gee, that's nice. Aren't we dealing with the fact that we understand that for for people of modest or limited incomes, they often, and also because housing is so complicated now, they often have to travel, as you say, Christine, 30 or 40 miles to go to a job. So so you're now going to increase the cost of them getting a relatively low-wage job, but one that might be better for them than the job that's closer by, by penalizing them for being poor and not having the same life choices that you have? Uh, that's where liberalism, you know, one of the, I think I've always thought, you know, one of the, the, one of the things that makes, that has always scored when liberals attack conservatives is the social hypocrisy argument, right? Conservatives say you should live this way, you know, you should live bourgeois lifestyle and, you know, don't do all this. And then they're caught having affairs or, you know, leading a secret life or something like that that contradicts what they uh, talk about in public policy. And that's had real political consequences. It played a real role in helping Democrats win the House in 2006, the congressional uh, page sex scandals and things like that, which exposed a certain number of House Republicans as as hypocrites who were trying to tell other people how to live while they themselves didn't, uh, you know, abide <clears throat> abide the rules. That stuff is is it can be uh, very telling and it's important and you know people have have learned from that and um at some point you know uh Goldman Sachs partners giving money to environmental activists to uh, to try to penalize poor people uh for having a relatively cheap energy because that actually makes their lives more sustainable. Ah, you know, more backlash, the, po- the, the backlash possibilities, and we've seen them time and again in individual places, in individual cases. The war I mean, against fracking had the war against fracking that's, has that's had a point. You need to dwell on, though. That it's yeah. not just lifestyle hypocrisy, it's intellectual hypocrisy to the point where they are sort of recognizing their vulnerability on it. Um, one of, you know, the, the technology. That resulted in the fracking revolution in the last decade produces a lot of unlocks a lot of natural gas and natural gas is, is a cleaner burning fuel it's a, it's called a bridge fuel a bridge to a to a cleaner burning future right and they're waging a war on that they don't like that because any emissions are bad right well what about nuclear power which produces no emissions well they're against that as well because the prospect of accidents are very scary even though they're extraordinarily rare it's still super super scary uh, and they're beginning to wake up, I think, to the vulnerability that they have on this dogma because they're so rigid and so inflexible that some of them, some of the activist class are now beginning to say, you know, fracking's a bridge too far because it's still hydrocarbon. 
But nuclear? Now, what's the argument against that? It's kind of hard to make it. So you're beginning to see some frizzers, at least on the left there, because a Republican can make not just the the very compelling lifestyle argument, but also a very compelling argument that triangulates the issue Democrats think they own. Well, and there, I think that's actually, that, that's a good point because it, it explains to me, uh, I was wondering why in her reintroduction of the Green New Deal, AOC was focusing so much on racial justice, housing justice, everything is climate in the same way that everything is infrastructure. But she was talking about that a lot. And there's a sense I had that she's, in some ways, they're going to try to cloak a lot of what they want to do that is in fact an attack on lower class people's way of life as actually what's best for them because it's part of a broader racial justice message, right? So you can't attack it, even though it's going to actually compromise the day-to-day lives of lots of working class people. It's still what's best for them. And they're telling them this is what's best for you because it will achieve racial justice. And some of you might be minority race, members of minority race. Like there's a weird kind of messaging that they're doing now that I think they think will make them invulnerable to attacks about this, but shouldn't. You know, when you get to the, when you talk about the whole injustice aspect of it, and the more I think about John's point about innovation, um, American innovation is now extremely problematic for the left, actually, um, because for one thing, it's jingoistic, right? We, it's, it, it, it feeds this myth that, that we have about ourselves as, you know, as, Pioneers and problem solvers, and and you know world leaders, and 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 that's a problem. Then the whole yeah, we're exceptional. Then the whole system that feeds innovation and um, uh, you know intellectual uh, learning and the rest of it that's riddled with all sorts of inequalities and problems, right? So you're not even so you're 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 going to it's a system that prioritizes white males. And uh, women don't go into the STEM courses. Then that's the kind of thing that we're talking about solving here. And finally, if you innovate your way out of a problem, you don't get to scold anyone. That's that's. There's no fun in it. You don't get to hector people. You don't get to tell them what they can't do. And and that's the big drawback. Right. Well, look. You know, I've learned a lot about these issues and how they function. Uh, in our economy, both uh, on a day-to-day and week-to-week and year-to-year basis, by reading the work and uh, and the insights of the Bonson Group, our regular uh, sponsor, uh, that bi-coastal financial management and services firm with uh, 28 professionals uh, managing $2.8 billion worth of uh, private resources, um, they produce two remarkable internet documents, the dctoday.com on a, on a daily basis during the week, and the and uh, dividendcafe.com usually comes out on Fridays for the weekend. David Bonson, the manager of the firm, uh, produces these documents that, that are uniquely uh, designed to help explain the intricacies of the policy choices in Washington their effect on the economy, uh, the larger economy, and their impact on your personal investing. So please take a look at the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com presented to you by the Bonson Group, your antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. 
So um, can, let's talk about this Biden one-term um, seduction uh, theory that um, uh, a president who appears to be and ran on the uh, notion that he was going to restore uh, normality to American political life uh, and uh, and serve essentially as a bridge to the future given his age and all of that um, is not conducting himself with the kind of prudent, careful, calculated, quiet approach that you you would think. Uh, we're now at the we're now at the hundred day point. Uh, we've had a two billion two trillion dollar piece of legislation. We have another one coming down the pike that's going to be that, or maybe as much as double as that. We have this having carbon emissions by 2030. We have um, very raw offers to Iran to bring them. Granted, he said he was going to uh, restore the 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 Iran deal, um, uh, but uh, they also said that they weren't going to uh, eliminate certain types of. Uh, sanctions or prohibitions on Iranian financial activities in the West, those apparently have been negotiated away unilaterally by Robert Malley, the the chief negotiator uh, in Vienna, talking uh, with the Iranians, or however it is that we're doing this with the Iranians. Um, and so, uh, is Biden has Biden betrayed the essential promise? Uh, that he made running for president or look, he's got the situation that he's got and he's, he's going for it because that's, that's what, that's what presidents do. Yeah. But well, I, we can't answer that question, I think until the midterm elections and then the next presidential election. But I do, there's definitely a sense that this is someone who ran on like, I'm the grandpa who, who used to run the uh, local, you know, housing, uh, housing uh, board, you know, in my retirement community, and I'm calm, and I'm thoughtful, and that crazy guy, we're going to deal with all his crazy stuff and restore normalcy. And instead, the minute he gets power, he like chucks it all drives to Vegas and starts gambling wildly. And I feel like that that is that is not on message. And, and I think people are right now at a stage of being kind of like unsettled, if this if a lot of it works, there might not be a problem with it. But I, I feel like the fact that he is now so radically gone to the left at the same time that you watch the media, which should be holding him to account for what he said versus what he's doing, doing things like at Politico recently announced, it will no longer call the border crisis a crisis. So there's a kind of state media aspect to a lot of how his coverage is, is being filtered. So Americans aren't even really getting the full picture of what's happening because we're changing the way we talk about these things. So I'm not so sure that this won't resonate in the midterms. And certainly, you know, uh, it's going to have an effect on Kamala Harris if she's the presumptive nominee in 2024. Okay. You know, I forgot to bring something up, but it, it jibes with this, which is that um, director of uh, uh, national intelligence, uh, Avril Haines, yesterday said on Earth Day that all of American foreign policy, including intelligence, was now going to be redirected toward issues of climate change. Can someone explain to me what that means? I don't understand. The what, plot of what, Geostorm. What are the, <laughs> I'm sorry. Right, what, are the, what, are the, what are the intelligence implications of climate change i mean aside aside from saying 
if you believe it, that climate change is going to introduce instability into parts of the world where there's going to be more flooding and stuff like that. I mean, there's that idea, right? Which is, which has been sort of extant in the intelligence. We're fighting community. over water resources and other. Right. Parts or, of the world. Right, okay. Yeah. Okay. But we just tend to think of national intelligence as being, you know, like, how are they analyzing the current situation in X as regards what is going on? Why is Putin uh, menacing Ukraine? Is he menacing Ukraine because he really does want to go in and and you know and and retake whatever do whatever he wants to do there, or is this a feint or a dodge because he's actually consolidating power by essentially killing off Alexei Navalny? Like that's something a question that you sort of want your intelligence agencies to use its sources and methods and everything like that to figure out what's he up to, so we know what to take seriously and what not to take seriously. What is going on at the Wuhan lab? Who was responding? Was this an industrial accident, or you know, essentially, or a, a scientific accident? How are the Chinese doing X? What are the North Koreans doing in relation to their nuclear program? Like, that's what intelligence is supposedly for. What is it? So we are now looking at this, and we're now going to assign tasks of government that cannot be suspended because of more fashionable concerns. How are they going to do both? And at, particularly at a time when the world is actually more confusing and in which we are being challenged in weird ways in other places, uh, particularly in the South China Seas and elsewhere, where we need better intelligence of a more classic sort and not funky fun intelligence on on you know how somebody may you know steal may occupy uh you know, a, a port in order to steal stuff because climate change is screwing up their economy. This sort of reminds me <clears throat> a little bit of my experience as a, a graduate student of international relations in 2008 to 2010, roughly, and learning about theories of international relations, which essentially explain why nations do things. And provide some predictive prescriptions about what they might do in the future. So you have schools like realism and uh, institutionalism and constructivism and even Marxism, which all provide some prescriptions for uh, or predictive, you know, uh, remedies for how it describes what a nation does, why it does it, what are, what their strategy is and how to pursue it. And one of those schools that I was taught was a school of international relations around feminism. And it was the most tortured and unconvincing attempt to get me to believe that I could determine what a nation's grand strategy was and how it was would pursue it based on how it it regards the role of women. Um, this only makes sense to you insofar as you you tell yourself you have to believe it. It's not compelling on its face. It's not compelling on its merits. It is compelling only because it is a statement of principles and a display of your adherence to, as you said, fashionable tenets of political ideology. But we're teaching these things to kids or to kids, the young adults or going into the workforce, in my case, going to the diplomatic corps with this completely fatuous belief of something that doesn't exist. How is that advancing anybody's interest? Right. Well, at least that was theory being taught at a graduate school. This is the doctrine that is being promulgated by the director of national intelligence. Oh, but where do you think it came from? 
Well, where do you think it came from? Well, all this woke stuff is very difficult to argue with only because it adopts and appropriates the language of the, of the, of the gender studies, conflict studies, uh, grievance studies in the classroom. Ooh. They adopt these polysyllabic jargon and pseudo-academic right. concepts to force you to stop arguing with them. What this reminds me of is, is um, I, I think I have the details wrong because it's been a while, but so you'll correct me, I hope. Um, didn't the director of NASA under Obama say that he was devoting his energy to is fighting Islamophobia or something? Yes. <laughs> and climate change. And climate change. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mission no, creep I mean, isn't even yeah. the right word. It's, it's, it's right. just this. I mean, when you, the the thing about you know, appro- this approaching problem solving as this messianic mission is that you, yeah, you you get to ignore all like the real world problems while 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 you you know have these, you know, uh, elevated uh, you know pie in the sky ideas. I mean, and the fact, by the way, that our intelligence at the moment isn't right now more geared toward the horror of of what's going on with Alexei Navalny, by the way. Um, is is just a is just a terrible stain on us. And by the way, I have to say it: if, if Trump were president and this were happening, it would be a much bigger deal. It would be a, the, the the fact that the U.S. is 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 letting this happen right before its eyes, killing. They're, they're, Putin is killing his his his, his greatest uh, uh, adversary here, uh, while the U.S. is you know re- refocusing its intelligence on climate is. Just scandalous. But we should add that Navalny said that he would abandon his hunger strike this morning. Oh, he did? Okay. Yeah. In coincidence, by the way, with the Russia's announcement, we have to see what happened. That it was pulling back. Pulling from troops from back. Drawing yeah. Yeah, troops that have been amassing on the right. borders of Ukraine for several weeks. Can I just say that these these theories, and particularly the one that Noah uh, was subjected to as a grad student about you know how feminism is, is a lens through which we, we should do our foreign policy, it doesn't just... Um, allow us, uh, it doesn't just make us ignore things that, that are right in front of us that we should be dealing with that are crises. It forces every crisis through that lens. And this is like, this This speaks to the sort of critical race theory as well, in a way that uh, forces a narrative that requires that you set aside facts that are right in front of you. So for the feminism, I remember just being, uh, I, I did feminist theory as my minor field as a grad student. And we would read these books and you always knew you were in a feminist theory or women's studies class versus a history class. Cause the books would basically say, if you would only let women rule the world, it would be peaceful, utopian, nirvana. It would just be so wonderful. And I would of course raise my hand and say, but there have been women rulers and we know them to be as bloodthirsty and brutal as the men. It doesn't make sense. Like, so, but it couldn't make sense. It had to make sense through that lens. And the, the assumptions that come with the theory are the starting point in a sense, in a way that they shouldn't be. If you're analyzing a situation, you can bring those in as part of your analysis and reject them or accept them, but that's not how it works. And so, yes, I, I, I agree with Noah. That's, that is not, that should not be the starting point for how we look at national security or our, or our foreign interests. Right. Guys, um, you know, in line with the whole idea of uh, of, of living uh, in a world that uh, that rewards and advances innovation, um, let, let's let's just uh, reflect just for a second on how uh, you know back in the 1970s or something like that, you had one way to send a piece of mail. Uh, you sent it through the post office, and you were at the post office's you know mercy. It took however long it took. There was nothing you could do about it. Then you start introducing, and there was some UPS, and you start introducing other services, 
and all of that. And now here we are in 2021. And you know what you can do? You can use stamps.com, which will mean you don't have to go to the post office. You don't have to pay full price for postage. You can mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, pay less, a lot less, with discounted rates from the Postal Service, UPS, and more. Stamps.com saves businesses thousands of hours and tons of money every year, bringing the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, a side hustle, Etsy shop, shipping out orders, or just navigating our hybrid work life, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease, and one million businesses choose it for their mailing and shipping. You simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. And with Stamps.com, you get discounts up to 40% off post office rates and up to 66% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention Stamps.com is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. It's a no-brainer. It saves you time and money. It's no wonder nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com. So stop wasting time going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code, Commentary, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Commentary. That's Stamps.com. Promo code commentary, stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Uh, I want to switch gears and go to a, a weird little story uh, I sent you guys just before we went on, on the air that I found totally by happenstance, uh, and it involves something you would think you would never care about, which is who's going to be the director of the European tour of Beauty and the Beast now being staged, going through you, going through uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland. Okay, who's going to do that? You don't care, right? Well, the guy who was going to do it, his name is Rob Roth, and Rob Roth directed the original production of Beauty and the Beast on on Broadway. Uh, and um, Rob Roth, uh, it's, it was a terrible production, by the way. It looked like one of those bad shows at Disney World. It took bad productions like that to lead them to the notion they needed to do something innovative and therefore they created the Lion King, the most successful theatrical production ever and one that is totally, you know, innovative and amazing. So Rob Roth did this, you know, tw- I don't know, almost 30 years ago, staged Beauty and the Beast on Broadway and uh, apparently was getting himself a new job staging the tour through the UK. And he was on a plane or something. Oh, yeah, he was on a plane on April 16th. And a passenger seated near him, this is a story from Playbill, was able, he was writing an email, and a passenger seated near him was able to transcribe the contents of the email that Roth was typing uh, while he was sitting on this plane. And apparently he said that Scott Rudin, the now, you know, now disgraced, only, you know, famously awful, mean producer uh, who has now been the subject of new stories about how terrible a boss he is, uh, and uh, then was greeted. Uh, one of the things that happened after the story appeared in The Hollywood Reporter was a 
a very flamboyant Broadway actress named Karen Olivo, who had quit the business a couple of times before. And now she was quitting the business a third time uh, in order because uh, the business wasn't going to deal with Scott Rudin. She had nothing to do with Scott Rudin. She didn't have, she wasn't heard the show that she was in Moulin Rouge had nothing to do with Scott Rudin, but she was going to quit in order to make a point about Scott Rudin. So apparently Roth is writing an email that says Rudin deserves an honorary Tony award for somehow getting that horrible woman to quit acting. God bless you, Scott, for your service to American theater. Okay. He's writing this in a private email. Somebody was looking over his shoulder or whatever. Uh, Roth has now resigned. Uh, has stepped down from the Beauty and the Beast tour. Whenever it says someone is stepping down, that means that you know they're they're jumping before they were pushed. Obviously, uh, uh, Roth confirmed the contents of the email and then said in a statement: "Upon consideration of recent events, it is clear that I am not in a position to lead this production at this time. I see now that the sentiments included in a private email that went public were thoughtless and insensitive." And I am profoundly sorry that my comments have caused unintended pain. I deeply regret making light of bullying, which I know to be a horrible experience for the good of the show and this wonderful company of artists. I've made the difficult decision to step aside as director. So let us now go to where this has led us. So it is now acceptable for a person to steal, to to copy a private correspondence as it is being written and then retail it. And then this ends the career because, you know, this is like potentially career. I think it's not like Rob Roth has a, has a really thrilling career after his lousy production of Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. He hasn't done that much. Um, so this was like, they were probably throwing him a bone to let him even do this, this tour. Um, okay. I'm, I'm done with the story. Okay. Please and, respond. We, well, the, and the most important point, which is, he was an expressing he was expressing a private opinion. And by the way, it's one I share. I saw her performance <laughs> in, on Broadway in Moulin Rouge, and she's just not she she's not good. I mean, she's fine, but she certainly was not you know what I had expected to see. Um, so, but it's still his opinion. It's a private opinion, privately expressed in public, right? So it's a very strange inversion where we have a lot of, you know, social media has allowed the amplification of a lot of, uh, has, has made public lots of people's immediate private thoughts and often to their detriment. And John Ronson wrote a whole great book about this, the, you know, are you being shamed? Um, so, he, but, but this actually, when you sent us that story, I sent you the image of the guy from, from the lives of others because there's a weird Stasi like reporting quality to this, these kinds of episodes. This guy is not a major celebrity. He's not. He's a producer. He's a behind the scenes guy. And anyone who's been in any sort of performing arts or theater setting knows that you can have extremely tough taskmasters who might be called bullying if in other contexts, but in fact are just highly demanding and highly temperamental people. Uh, that is, not a defense of people who bully their employees, obviously, but he wasn't even the bully. He was just someone who was kind of offering his opinion about the bully's understanding of someone's acting talent or lack thereof. That is concerning. It's concerning. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's informing on fellow private citizens. What gets to me about the story is the cowardice. What, what is he apologizing for? Is it, it's, it's time and again, they 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 come out with these absolutely needless apologies, scared for their careers. Does it take so much to just say, "Yeah, look, it was my opinion. I wrote it. I, 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 I you know, I feel bad that it got out because that, but that wasn't my doing." 
And, you know, my opinion is my opinion. My work is my work. And I'll stand by my work. And I'll stand by my opinion now that it's out. Um, I, I will just say this. Since, since I'm in no danger of losing uh, a job in show business, everybody uh, that I've spoken to about Karen Olivo says that she's incredibly uh, – I mean, look, her career – she. She keeps quitting her own profession, not because of Scott Rudin. Now she's quit her profession in this public way because of her disgust at somebody with whom she is not in business. Um, That's like the celebrities who quit Twitter, you know, very dramatic. Like Chrissy Teigen, who's like, I can't take it anymore, the hostility. Yeah. And then she's back two weeks later. Right. But I mean, my my, my point here is that um, is that uh, I, do, I do not believe that Rob Roth was expressing an opinion about Karen Olivo. Uh, that was controversial in many circles. Uh, so it, you know, and he wasn't expressing it publicly. He wasn't defaming her publicly. He wasn't saying anything about her publicly. Uh, you know, uh, talk about the there, but for the grace of God, go I, or, or, you know, we are all, and I think the lives of others, which is which is the best movie of the 21st century, a movie made in West Germany or Germany, obviously, in 2006 about a uh, about a, a senior agent of the Stasi, the East German secret police, in the early 1960s, who starts spying on a, a woman that he um, is wildly attracted to, and her uh, quizzling uh, playwright husband who is our boyfriend who is a um who like is a sort of an acceptable playwright uh in the world of uh in the world of uh east german totalitarianism um and and how this guy starts to develop a conscience it's one of the great movies ever made it is the greatest movie of the 21st century the lives of others you should go see it and it is about a surveillance society and how everyone in the society achieves a level of distrust toward everyone else in the society that cannot be overcome because it is organized to provoke and 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 uh, and control people through distrust uh and and the threat of destruction right in this case this is career destruction in the case of you know east germany it's prison and torture and you know all of that uh, it's a pretty uh, anyway. It's, it, was a, it was a great analogy, uh, and uh, and uh, I, I just think you know, like, where is the outrage at the person who retailed the email? Why isn't everybody on Earth terrified that this is going to happen to them? Because they get rewarded for it. I mean, I, it actually prompted thinking about that story: the high school student who saved the little video clip of the classmate who'd said the N word, and he sat on that clip for a couple of years until it, it would be useful for him to deploy it and derail her college hopes. And he and he was given this absolute adoration by the New York Times. You know, his whole story. He they were allowed. He was allowed to ex, ex, expand. You know, and dilate on on all the offenses she had committed. And to express no remorse, like he was even given the opportunity to be like, oh, did you take this a little too far? No, absolutely not. Like our society or certain segments of elite opinion reward the tattletaling. They reward it. They reward it with, you know, uh, uh, puff pieces. They, they uh, or they call it, oh, you know, the little guy is take is defeating this elite powerful, you know, producer. It's seen as a general good when in fact it's the opposite. By the way, I just want to make one more point, and then I got to go to another spot. But that is, 
in the in the world of show business, Karen Olivo is more powerful than Rob Roth. Karen Olivo is a Tony Award winning actress, was starring in in a major Broadway production that is one of the few productions that's going to come back when the pandemic is over. The power dynamic here isn't that he's powerful and she's not. She's more famous. She's more successful. And her and her words and everything carry much greater weight than this hack director who had one show on Broadway 28 or 29 years ago. And who, as I say, got thrown a bone so that he could direct some bus and truck tour of the one show that he produced that ran for a long time. So that's kind of an amazing thing. And you know what else is amazing? Chewing gum. Yes, I made that transition. Because chewing gum, people people say, yeah, chewing gum. You know what it can do for you? It can actually promote your dental health. Uh, the American Dental Association recommends chewing sugar-free gum for 20 minutes after meals. It helps clean your teeth. It helps freshen your breath. It helps do all kinds of good stuff. You chew gum to relieve stress, to curb your appetite, and to freshen your breath. But it can also be part of an integral an integral part of your daily oral care routine. And Quip has now made gum part of its package, okay? Uh, Quip reinvented the toothbrush only a few years ago, and they've done it again with a new gum that's actually good for your oral health and comes with a dispenser that will remind you of the one-click candy you loved as a kid. It can help prevent cavities, fresh in breath. When chewed for 20 minutes after eating, it's sugar-free and has tooth-friendly xylitol with zero calories, and it added a long-lasting mid-flavor, crunchy tri-layer design and stamped it with the classic Quip tongue. And that travel-ready dispenser, slim, five colors, metal or plastic, packs and protects up to 10 gum pieces at a time, fits in just about any purse or pocket on the go. So you can add a gum refill plan for a gift that keeps on giving all year round. Quip's customizable subscription lets you chew and share at your own pace, not worry about running out. Plus, the more you buy, the more you save with bulk discounts on extra gum packs. It's not a substitute for brushing and flossing. But this is a great support for your oral health. You know what is uh, good for your oral health? Subscribing to Quip for that toothbrush, the electric toothbrush, the br- new brush heads, the floss, and the toothpaste refills every three months. Uh, so go to getquip.com slash commentary right now. You can get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash commentary, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary. You can also find the Quip electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and more in the oral care aisle at your local Walmart. Quip, the good habits company. I'm going to call an audible in the very last minutes of this podcast because I want everybody to weigh in on this now, having no thought whatsoever put into this instant reactions. And I'm going to share mine. As of this morning, Gavin Newsom in California is going to face a recall. One of her one of his potential challengers according to the paperwork she will file today, is television star Caitlyn Jenner, who will be running as a Republican to govern the state of California. Transgender woman, one of the most famous athletes in America, household name, both names, household names. Um, I am so excited for the partisan role reversals we are about to experience as Republicans who may be a little bit skeptical of transgenderism and certainly of state mandated, you know, protections for individuals who undergo that kind of therapy or even surgery and Democrats who have made this a tenet of a a religious faith practically and made this very minor portion of the population, the new civil rights movement. 
Expect to see all of that reversed as Democrats struggle to message against this woman and uh, her choices and her politics and her beliefs and her background and everything that makes her unfit to be a representative of this, the most liberal state in the union. Can't wait. Okay, can I just say, I'm, I'm, I'm still slightly traumatized by the fact that Caitlin was appeared in a, an extremely revealing corset on the cover of Vanity Fair when, you know, to, to reveal herself, you know, I'm like, no one wants to see grandma in a corset. I don't care what your journey is. So I'm, I'm still like processing that. That said, it's going to be glorious, right? It's, I mean, I actually, I, I would take issue with the idea that that all Republicans have a problem with with transgender people. Most don't. Most have a problem with the state mandating certain the expression of certain protections and beliefs that threaten the privacy rights and individual freedoms of other Americans. That it's basically a rights battle in a lot of these cases. You know, the locker room battle, the bathroom battles. Um, and I also like the fact that the other thing we should mention is that for a Republican party that's always called a bastion of white male supremacy, it's Senator Tim Scott who's going to be giving the re- the reaction next week to to Biden's uh, congressional address. So the party has a lot of opportunity here to embrace difference. Um, it's always had some difference, but it's got a as a rebranding measure, it's fantastic. And you know, Caitlin would be better than Newsom. So I, I think it, you know the most fierce opposition the potential for the fierce opposition from Republicans that she could face, I think would depend on uh, her articulation of sort of what kind of Republican she is, where she stands on uh, Trump and the steel and our, you know, our, our fraudulent election system and things of that nature. Because if she doesn't, if she gets crosswise of those folks, then um, they'll, they'll be happy to, uh, to pillage. Awesome. I mean, but she's been a creature of Hollywood now for a decade. You know, I, I imagine she's internalized a lot of the, or at least can speak the language uh, of that you know particular segment of society. Uh, in 2003, when Gray Davis was recalled and there was a special election, I happened to be in California the week before the election. Um, and there was this jungle election there were like 15 people in the election and there was one debate um and i was in a car driving and uh for some reason it may not have been televised it might have been some bizarre rules had been structured whatever but i i was in a car and i pulled over to the side of the road to listen (coughs) to the debate and of course the two stars of the debate were the eventual governor arnold schwarzenegger right one of the biggest movie stars in the world and Ari and and my my old and dear friend Ariana Huffington, uh, who was running against him, and who was the person who decided to take up these questions of whether or not Arnold Schwarzenegger had been behaved uh, in a disgusting fashion uh, on movie sets and things like that, which had been a, the subject of a story in the LA Times. And here we were, largest state in the country, recall of the governor, you know solemn moment, all of that. And here was the tone of the debate. Arnold, you know that in the debate, you know that in the movies, you cannot behave this way toward women, Arnold. Oh, Ariana, you know, you're so hilarious. You're really so, so, you crack me up all the time, Ariana. I love talking to you. Arnold, Arnold, what are you doing? You know, this was, it went on for like 20 minutes. It was it was one of the greatest comedy routines in the history of the United States. No, but don't you and, love this country? Only this country could produce that debate. <laughs> but that debate was a presage, right? Presaged 
the Republican debates of 2016. But there was only one, because as we know from the great, notable great rivalry, showbiz rivalry cartoon between Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck uh, in vaudeville, where Bugs Bunny is always getting all the applause and Daffy gets no applause, Daffy, of course, then has to swallow uh, all this um, gasoline and then light a match and blow himself up. And then Bugs says, Daffy, they love you. It's incredible. You know, they're screaming for more. And Daffy, who is now a ghost, you know, floating up with a halo in his head, says, I can only do it once. (laughs) Well, it turns out you can't only do it once. So I'm looking forward. I don't know who is going to be Caitlyn Jenner's interlocutor. Whether there will be several, what lunatics are going to run in this race that will that will create? I just I, I I'm just saying, you know how they rebooted Coming to America, and you know they're Saved by the Bell and Punky Brew, all these things, all these like classic California things from the '90s. This is my reboot. This California Recall Governor's Debate is the reboot that I have been waiting for. And I thank you, Noah, for bringing it up. I thank everybody for listening. Have a great weekend. For Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.